You're listening to Climate Curious, a podcast for people who care about the world but find the current conversation about climate change confusing, boring or scary. This is episode nine, Ben. So we've been at this for two and a bit months. Yeah, this that that's a lot of that's a lot of conversation. How are you feeling about one topic? I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling um, less anxious. That's good. Which is good, I think. Um, I feel like in the beginning of this, I was like super like tense. <laughs> And a bit worried and quite and being quite harsh on myself. I think I think I was a bit like um, I've been talking in therapy recently about like inner child stuff. And I think I was pretty judgmental of myself in Mm. terms of like my my uh, how disengaged I was in the conversation. So I'm feeling a lot more relaxed. I think that's a a big a a visible change. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, That's really good to hear. And we're going to actually I'm going to come back to that at the very, very end. But I want to ask you, let's set the scene. Let's actually okay. go back to the summer, if we can remember yeah. what that was like. And <laughs> All the way back. All the way back. And I give you a call and I say to you, Ben, do you want to co-host this podcast on climate change with me? Yeah. Give our listeners a, a, a snapshot into your into how, what you're thinking. Ooh, what did I think? I, I thought, my first thought was... Um, Am I going to get paid for it? No, I'm joking. That's not my first <laughs> one. My first thought was, um, I know absolutely nothing about climate change. Um, and what I've learned over the course of my career is that when you don't know something, you should never admit to not knowing it. But I'm Ooh. trying to actively practice doing the opposite. So I think my response to you was actually, I don't know. Like, I'd love to do a podcast with you. That would be so fun. But I don't know anything about climate change at all. Um, and, and you reassured me that was really nice. You were like, no, that's the point. (laughs) But I, yeah, I, I felt, um, pretty, pretty like chill about having conversations, but also like a little bit intimidated by the fact that I knew absolutely nothing. Like, you know, sometimes people say they know nothing and they actually know a fair bit. Like I had no framework for understanding climate change apart from like adverts that come up on YouTube. Yeah, I was really excited that we would get to take this journey together. You know, I had been thinking about climate change intensely for the previous like four or five months, very kind of in a less intense, like a less knowledgeable way way before that, and knew that it was like this massive blind spot for us as mm-hmm. not just me as a person, but us as an organization. I'm really excited to review this season with you and think about all the things we've learned. All right, so let's move into a bit of a, a, a retrospective. And where I want us to start um, is this idea of mindset. So mm-hmm. first I want to start with our mindset. You know, Ben, one of the things I think I appreciated so much, and you've mentioned this before, is you, know, you went into every one of these episodes willing to ask any question. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that a bit. And also, did you feel like you got the answers you wanted? Yeah. So do you know what? Like, I've, I just think it's super fun. Like, I feel like I feel like on, on one level, like it's really fun to. So I was reading my um, <laughs> my mum showed me my report from year 10 that, like last weekend. Um, and it was it was pretty discouraging. <laughs> but but so like when up from when I was in school. Um, and all of my teachers said like exactly the same thing in all of my reports across all of my subjects, except for PE, where they were like, Ben's great. Um, in all of the other subjects, they were like, Ben's really positive. Um, he contributes really well to, to lessons. He asks loads of questions, but he's easily distracted and easily distracts other people. Um, and I think I, I have always been the kind of person that's very inquisitive, like, and, and not, re- not particularly ashamed to like, ask a question even when I know it's a dumb question because um my my suspicion is if I don't know something there's going to be at least two or three other people in the same space as me that also don't know and just wouldn't ask um but I think like one of the things um 
that I think is super important. And like, obviously climate change has never been my area of work or expertise. I work a lot in like masculinities um, and diversity and inclusion and gender equality. Um, but one of the things I always appreciate, like when I'm a guest on a podcast is being asked to explain things that I take for granted in my understanding because I think it, like on one level like it forces you to refresh your memory like it forces you to to re-understand the thing for yourself um but I also think it's just super like freeing and releasing to be able to chat um generally rather than to like sometimes we get caught in this like trap of like explaining things like in a super academic way or like and I find like I personally find it pretty boring to to do that so I feel like for for the people that are coming onto the pod like it felt like in asking those questions it was an opportunity for them to like just have a chat about something that they're pretty passionate about um and then I guess that the byproduct of that is I, I felt like I did get all of the answers that I wanted. I don't feel like there was a point where I asked a question and somebody kind of avoided it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think people were very gracious and generous with like taking their time and walking us through stuff. Um, but it felt like all of the, so for me, I know really early on, there was an example of like, um, so what is the actual situation? Like, what's the actual issue here? What's the real problem? And I thought people were going to be like, oh, yeah, no, and kind of talk around it. But everybody jumped straight into it and was pretty explicit about what the, the scope of the problem was or the scale of the problem. So that was super cool. Yeah, I agree. I almost found that everyone we spoke to loved the opportunity to speak about what they do day to day in a different way. And also really knew that in order for us to, you know, make the changes we need to make in order for us to kind of tackle this climate crisis, everyone would need to get involved. And the only way to do that is to talk to everyone. And so I felt really like that was like a big shift in the way that this is often talked about. You know, yeah. we got geeky, but we got geeky in a way that was accessible. So yeah. I want to I want to play us some clips um, throughout this episode. Ooh, yeah. And so we talked about our mindset and being open, asking questions, you know, delving into that. There are no such thing as silly or stupid questions. And I want to also now take us through, I think, a few things where different speakers, I think, helped us change our mindset when it came to the issue mm -hmm. itself. So let's start um, with this clip from Charmian Love um, and see what you think. Maybe it's not about the problem, but maybe you're thinking about like how can you and those companies be part of the solution, right? Okay. So it's another way of thinking about it. So it's not just here's the problem, but actually, what is the power that I have to be part of the solution, and what are the what is the power that others have to be a part of the solution? And then that takes me to another like both and level, which is I don't think it's either or. It's not individual or um, organizations and like the system. It's actually the solution to how we have to really address this climate emergency involves both and. So I think it is about the individual actions that we take. Um, so we should be really cognizant of them and conscious of them and 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 do what we can. And <laughs> you know, we don't we we, we don't want to just assume that every individual action we take is going to save the world because actually what we'd also need to do is be actively working towards a solution at a systems level. Um, so I think that just in just that question you've asked, I think that's a, a great place to like it, to play around with this idea of, and it's not about problem. It's like, like problem and the solution is on the other side. So like, how do we think about them as connected? And it's not just about an individual behavior. It's about individual and the system and how we think about those things working together. I think that's a really interesting way of, of like framing it, because I think maybe when I think about climate change, what I'm looking for is somebody to blame rather than, which is a really weird realisation, actually. I think maybe I'm looking for whose fault it is rather than what the actual solution is. So I, maybe my mind is not so consumed. And I think that's why when we were having that conversation in the beginning about whether I care or not, like, I feel like the answer is obviously I care, but at the same time, it's not really my fault. So it's somebody else's responsibility. Um, when actually maybe we're all supposed to be part of the solution here. I love that. I have to say that realization was huge for me too. Do you think that yeah. colored the way that you saw the whole season? Yeah, massively. Because I, I, And I think that was so important that that happened at the beginning. Um, because actually that was, you know, sometimes you have a framework for seeing mm. a thing um, 
and you're when you're unaware of the fact that you see an issue through a specific lens it's really hard for you to deconstruct your understanding of it um and for me like that point about like fault and responsibility and blame um was so so important um in terms of again just freeing myself from like um from playing the blame game and allowing myself to think about solutions like so get into a space where you're like okay so now that like even like even being able to identify whose fault it is doesn't really matter that much this is just the situation we're in so now how do we get out of that and what role do I have to play in us getting out of that? Um, and that same question applies to everyone. Like, what role do we all have in resolving this problem? Because um, if we don't, like, everybody suffers the consequences, right? Well, this is it. Because I think what you just said, Ben, links up so much to what Chris Mayer said in episode four. Um, and so I'm actually mm. going to play that clip and then let's have, a, let's have a chat about it. One of those aspects of wicked problems is that they often lead us to sit in our little corners mm. and to say, no, no, we should wait for other people to do something first, because in the position where I am, I can't do anything. Yeah. And those oil barons, we've actually, in conversations that we've had with some of them or with people who work with them, they are sitting in that position. They, some of them say, well, we know that climate change is a problem, but we're waiting for consumers to send the signal that we uh, that we need to change. Wow. And others say, um, you know, we know that climate change is a problem, but we don't feel that we can do much because our investors are looking over our shoulder mm. and want us to maximize our uh, our profits. They don't want us to be thinking about climate change too much. Mm. So even those people in that context are going, but what can I do? Mm. So businesses are waiting for governments to set regulations uh, they're also waiting for consumers to tell them what to do. Right. Politicians are waiting for citizens to tell them uh, what new regulations to bring in. And citizens are waiting for governments to tell them to take action and to tell them what to do. So we're all sort of just sitting there and waiting and looking, staring at each other and getting really upset for why the idiots on the other side aren't doing what they should be doing. I think it's so... I think this yeah. is so... It so connects, doesn't it? We are... If we get stuck in the blame, fault, problem camp, then, yeah, you just sit around waiting for other people to be the first ones to act. And, yeah. I, like, as a kid, I read loads of comics, right? So I always think of, like, life through this lens of, like, superheroes yeah. and supervillains and, like, good people and bad people. Um, and I think what was super interesting about that part of the conversation in particular was this idea that there aren't really bad people in the way that I imagined mm. that there were so I always think like oh there's a room of people at Shell or at BP who are like sitting around and plotting and scheming of how to like kill all of us <laughs> by, by like forcing us to use like terrible products or whatever it might be and actually speaking to Chris was probably the first time that I've considered those people to be people with like actual thoughts and feelings and problems to solve as well. And, and also had an understanding of maybe those people feeling powerless in the same way that I feel powerless to impact or change or challenge anything. Um, or seeing an issue and thinking it's too big and actually like all of these people are pressuring me to do all of this stuff that I don't necessarily want to do. So I think that was like a massive light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh wow, like blaming people doesn't actually really yeah, I mean, help. You know, there are plenty of people in the climate space who talk to who will tell you that there are some evil dudes sitting in a room making bad decisions. Yeah, 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 of course. You know, callous decisions. But I think what was interesting there is that is that that's like maybe one tiny bit of this picture. Actually, most mm. people want to do something. Most people don't want to be bad. They don't want to be evil. They're not they're not looking to kind of harm others. It's actually a lot more of mm. is anyone willing to actually take the first step? and put their head above the parapet, right, and say, actually, this needs to be done. Mm. It, for me, it actually felt like people are scared of acting and that what we need is courage. Uh, the thing that I really loved that Chris talked about, you, you mentioned in that episode, Ben, how sometimes you think that people who don't agree with you are stupid, and I I also I think that was one <laughs> of my confessions. And Chris mentioned, called this stupid, crazy, evil reasoning, where if someone doesn't agree uh, with you, you either think they're stupid, they're crazy, 
or they must have like negative, bad, evil intention. And actually, that's often not the case. Mm. I think probably this is one of the hardest things for me. It's still an ongoing battle is is not looking at someone who disagrees with me and immediately just dismissing them. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that but I think I think that that's um, that's really tough across the board, isn't it? And 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 actually, um, maybe that's one of the things that was like the most important reflections to come out of this whole process for me was like that's that doesn't make us um abnormal like i think it's pretty normal for us to judge people in that way but also it's not necessarily conducive to resolving the problem um or it doesn't help us to to action change the other thing that came in terms of mindset from chris's episode was this idea that i that i think is very counterintuitive and almost revolutionary that actions drive belief and that act you know mm. if you are someone who doesn't feel strongly about an issue who isn't already you know at the point where they're willing to glue themselves to the shell building or you know make massive life yeah. changes that actually yeah. trying to change people's beliefs won't work you need to get them to act you need to get them to do something the other one the the other episode that i think very much dealt with mindset was episode six with clover yeah. hogan and mm-hmm. There was a statistic that she shared in this episode that really floored me, right? So she talked about this research done by Friends of the Earth last year, and it showed that 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds in the UK identified as having eco-anxiety. Now, I was... that That's a big number, right? Mm. I, I, I was shocked. So let's, let's hear Clover talk about eco-anxiety a little bit. You know, when we think and talk about eco-anxiety, it's easy to assume that it's a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That it's a weakness. And yet eco-anxiety is not a clinical condition. And in fact, many climate psychologists would argue that it's the perfectly natural human response. In fact, they would say that the problem isn't that lots of young people are feeling eco-anxiety, but that more older generations aren't. And eco-anxiety suggests a high level of empathy and it suggests that you are not numbing yourself to the state of the world and to the problems. Um, Obviously, we can't constantly be consumed by grief and fear and overwhelm. And yet we have to create space for those feelings because those feelings are what catalyze us to take action. You know, lots of young people feel so overwhelmed by these feelings and do not have a kind of outlet of agency, a clear sense of here's what I can do. When you just have the feelings without a sense of here's what I can channel them into, that's when it tips into the powerlessness. That's when it tips into I'm too small to make a difference. Yeah, if you have a clear sense of here's the problem that I want to take on, kind of unattached from expectation or outcome of that problem actually being solved, that's where you really find your power. And for the older generations, often their powerlessness shows up in that kind of denial um, of, you know, technology will save the day or, you know, young people will step up to the challenge, right? And so they need to get more in touch with their feelings. They need to create more space for that eco-anxiety and and stop treating it as a weakness and start thinking of it as actually this is what's going to catalyze me to step up rather than mm. shut down. Super. Yo, that is... Clover's so smart, yeah. man. What the heck, first of all. But also, there is there is this idea, right? And, like, she said so much in that clip and there's so much to, like, dissect. But one of the big things that stood out for me was maybe this idea of stress not yeah. being a bad thing and like the narrative that we have as a, as a society and as a culture is like stress is negative and I think when you apply that to like this idea of eco-anxiety maybe there is a case like she's saying for actually um, those of us who are older 
to to maybe have a little bit more of that eco eco anxiety. Um, and there was a point in this in this episode where she she was talking about ecophobia, um, and and climate denial almost being like a natural manifestation of that. Um, and I think that's probably what a lot of us suffer from. And I know, like at the start of this journey, that was definitely what it was yeah. for me. Do you know what I mean? Like this idea of like. I, I don't understand this thing and it's scary, so I'm just going to pretend yeah. it's not happening. Um, as opposed to, like, maybe that her generation and what they're going through and experiencing when when you can't deny something and what the impact of that is. But I feel like maybe more of us I, need yeah, to feel Yeah, so that. true. You're listening to our emotions that, that actually our brains are created in a way that they're trying to tell us something is wrong. And instead of thinking that our right. brains are wrong, maybe we need to think oh, maybe this is a warning signal. This is our unconscious brain, like, designed through millions of years of evolution, warning signal, that if you are feeling uncomfortable when you think about these things, then actually something is really majorly wrong. I, I, I completely yeah. agree. I also think that there's absolutely a generational divide. Not everyone, but I think I absolutely um, have an optimism bias. I always think something yeah. is going to come along and save the day. I have to kind of operate yeah. in that way because otherwise it's, it is so depressing. And so finding a way to deal with that is, it, this is another one for me, which is a work in progress. I think the next thing, the next theme that really was cross-cutting was this, a, this mm. intersectionality, right? Was this idea of, right. of equality and justice and climate change and, and all of these things. You know, I think... For me, right right in the beginning, in episode two and three, you know, we were talking about air pollution and how air pollution is such a justice issue, a social justice issue, as much as it is a climate issue, as much as it is a quality of life issue and all these things and a health issue. Because, you know, in episode three, I thought we were going to talk about cars. And, and you know me, yeah. I, I, I love a good chat about cars. <laughs> and we ended yeah. up talking about inequality and a just transition. So... Let's actually, let's listen to that clip from our conversation with Monica. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look around the world, nine out of 10 people do not breathe clean air, period. There is no denying that. And the most vulnerable are children. And the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable are children in low-income communities. And if you go country by country, and if you look at those low-income uh, neighborhoods, you would find many other elements to it that create the the most unfair picture that you can imagine. So, for example, in California, again, the equivalent of the 10th largest economy in the world, they have mapped pollution, air pollution in particular, and they have mapped these this low-income communities and often it's basically minorities too. From the years, a lot of people who, you know, first or second or third generation immigrants and they have less access to decision making so when when a lot of these trucks for example pass by neighborhoods imagine the noise imagine the pollution they they leave behind and now that california has also had has decided to to rule um to, to set up a rule to clean up tra uh, trucks one of the numbers that came out just I will never forget that. Basically, there are communities in California where the, the, the citizens of those communities have measured 1,200 trucks, diesel trucks, passing by every single hour. So if you think about what that does to you from a noise perspective, from your breathing perspective, from a quality of life perspective, it's not fair. Yeah. It's, it's not fair at all, is it? <laughs> and it's it, like at its core, um, and I think this is, yeah, at, like truly at its core, this is an equity yeah. issue, isn't it? Like it's a, it's like a, a deep unfairness. Because it, it, like you said about the connecting these dots, you know, it is, it's an equity issue that becomes a health issue, which becomes a socio-economic issue, which becomes a equity issue right. which you know and it, and it reinforces itself like if you are exposed to these air pollute like these pollutants at such a massive level from childhood then you you know there's all these things about being able to concentrate in schools 
about being, you know, being healthy as you grow up, about being able to do, you know, like the healthier you are. You know, there's there's so much. It has so many knock-on effects. So on the 16th of December, they, the, the, basically there's a bit of this inquest going on for the past, I think, oh, year or so um, in London here about the, the death of a nine-year-old girl, Ella uh, Adu Kissy Deborah, who actually David Lamy talks right. about in his talk as well. And so she was nine. Um, she tragically died seven years ago. Um, she lived near the South Circular mm. Road in Lewisham. So if people don't know that road, Ben, it's it's massive, right? It's it's a major, pretty, pretty, pretty busy, busy. You know, yeah. cars, trucks, etc. Um, she had a really rare acute type of asthma and, and she died. And what her mum has been tirelessly fighting for for seven years is to get um, air pollution to be mm. listed as a cause of death on her death certificate, which would be the first person, I think, in the world, um, definitely in the UK, but yeah. possibly the world, that has had this recognised as as their cause of death. And it's it's kind of... It's... Uh, it's kind of amazing, you know? It's... The, yeah, man. In, and I say that in, like, not a positive way. I mean, that's... It's, it's so sad... And so close to home. I mean, I think that's the thing, Ben. Right. And 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 the 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 thing about this that about this case, right? That that stands out to me is like how seminal it is, like how important this ruling is, because it forces us as a society to deal with or to acknowledge the impact yes. of what's going on. This is like life and death, right? Like you, you can't. People cannot exist healthily in those environments so if that is something that's happening um and and we're just constantly breathing in pollution and like monica said it's it's the kids like who are most most uh harshly impacted by this because of um the development of their of their bodies or the, their size and how close they are to pollution when they're walking past cars or whatever it might be um like it, it moves us to a point now where we're like, oh, like this is essentially murder that's taking place in yeah. South London on a rig, and 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 this is one yeah. kid, right? Like this is yeah. one child. But how many people are are being impacted by this? There was a link that was made in one of the episodes about the the link between um, air pollution and asthma, and this, like as you say, amazing, not in a gr in a good way, but like amazing that somebody had the, the, the strength to fight this the whole way through and, and see it through to the end because now that changes so much. For me, when I think about right. this, this case and how close it, it hits to home, I won't be part of the problem anymore. Like, I don't think it's right yeah. that Ella's mum, you know, has had to spend the last seven years talking about her daughter's death every single day to bring about this kind of change. Right. And, and like you say, I think we spoke about this in the episode with Monica as well, is that some of us are in a position to challenge that immediately, directly. And for those of us who are in a position to do that, for those of us who have the money to buy a new car and are planning on buying a new car in the next five years, like maybe we should think about what kind of car we're going to buy and take that seriously because... The link is undeniable at this point, right? Like, And, I, and again, that, that's something that becomes super important about... Um, the, the piece of work that's been done around the death of this child is, is like, we can't deny, we can't ignore that me driving around in my car in South London has an impact on people in real time. And so I want to move us on then to something else in this equality, justice and intersectionality piece, mm -hmm. um, which we talked about in, in episode five with uh, David Lammy, MP for Tottenham. So mm -hmm. let me play that, episode, that clip for you. The truth is my experience of people who are um, poor, people who have trouble paying the bills, mm -hmm. people who are being harassed by the police, people who are worried about where food's coming from because they've just lost their job. Um, um, and, you know, I'm thinking of a lot of black people in that position, is they haven't got time to worry about what appears to be 
big picture policy um, because there are a lot of daily stresses and that's certainly the context in which I grew up. Um, and so that's one conversation. And the other conversation is if climate, the climate emergency is all about carbon emissions, mm. if it's about the Green New Deal, but you never connect that to equity, to jobs that matter to people in their communities um, that seem real, then of course black people aren't going to be thinking about this, which is why I did my TED talk. One, to connect the dots, to challenge both those who are in um, you know, environmental organisations, those who are raising their voice about these issues, to remind them that this in the end is not just about saving the planet, it's about the people on the planet, and the people on the planet bearing the brunt of it are black, but also to challenge the black community that if we are protesting for George Floyd, and if we are using the motif, I can't breathe, then please remember that there are thousands of people who can't breathe because they are literally being choked in their communities or they are experiencing drought, flood, um, pollution in the global south. And so it's to connect the dots. It's not to exceptionalise one group. I, I've campaigned as a result of George Floyd's, Floyd's murder but I'm not going to exceptionalise the African-American experience and not say that, that black people that die in Darfur, which is the first climate change um, war, if you like, or civil war, if you like, are somehow less important. They are as important. Mm. And until we live in a world where that is fully understood, none of us are truly free. Yeah. I do. I mean, I think this is something that's not talked about enough. I'm so... I said it in the episode, I think... But I, I was so excited to see that, you know, David was giving a talk on this topic at Climate Countdown. You know, yeah. like having race and intersectionality and the impact of climate change on black and brown people around the world center in the conversation for me is yeah. so important because I don't think we, I, I really didn't, genuinely don't think we have thought about this. You actually asked me in this episode, Ben, when I started to think about race and climate change and we both said it was very recently even though as you pointed out neither of us is white and so you think <laughs> yeah. that maybe we would be more aware of this i think there's a couple of things that david lemmy says there that are really really important to my understanding of this one is that and this goes back to what we talked about with the air pollution black and brown people are disproportionately affected by mm -hmm. climate change and that is not just in the global south that's that's everywhere and that's not even just in air pollution and in the kind of destruction of our homes but also in the kind of the the just transition that we're going to have to have out of these extractive and fossil fuel and polluting industries right. but also that so often it's like a reinforcing disadvantage you know like like our post-colonial legacy and these and the fact that we live in that kind of a white supremacist culture means that black and brown people are disadvantaged on every level yeah and 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 i think um like when i think about myself and my own community like my community is still catching up with the conversation about mental health do you know what i mean yeah, so yeah, yeah, so like yeah. these like these kinds of these kinds of conversations are not on the agenda when when survival is the the game. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's yeah. no time yeah. to talk about this stuff. Um, and and it is as we have seen. And I think this is what was so amazing about this conversation with David was like sometimes I I get into this space where I think all of this stuff is in my head, and I can draw these links and make these points and make these comparisons. But I don't necessarily have the evidence or the facts to like back up my opinion. Mm. Um, and just to hear someone. Um, be able to articulate what's going on and the impact of that and how 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 badly it disproportionately affects people of colour um, was just for me like a, a really like nourishing moment for like my my spirit or my soul I don't know how to describe it but just like made yeah. me feel yeah. like I could rest for a moment um, which is so important and I think like the 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 end of th that clip that you just played right was like David. Um, 
making this statement, which to me is is really similar to the statement, um, injustice anywhere is a, a threat to justice everywhere. Mm. Um, and I think that that is really the core of what we're talking about here, right? Is is the fact that like we can't, um, as he said, we can't exceptionalize certain things. We can't really care about one one struggle of people of colour in one place yeah. and not care about all of them. Or we can, but that kind of renders it useless. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. we, because yeah. it's not true freedom. That's not what freedom and justice and liberation actually looks like. Um, and I think for me, like this conversation was about the shifting of um, the lens of justice and liberation. And and, and for to understand what that truly looks like, like climate change is a massive part of that conversation like we've talked about blame a few times here right is are we blaming the people who are the least contributing to the climate issue and least able to make major life changes and mm. i want to come to a clip um from our conversation with with baroness lola young for this i'm not one of those people who believes in what i think of as eco shaming which is like blaming people who don't have very much money for buying cheap clothes. That's not on as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the less disposable income you have, the less able you are potentially to make a difference in this sector. It's where it's, it's corporations, it's businesses that have got to do the right thing right? Because it's in their hands. And if they're not doing the right thing, government has to um, encourage them, incentivize them. And if they still don't do the right thing, then they have to be penalized. I'm no fan of disempowering people mm -hmm. by default, which is say, well, nobody, none of us has any responsibility. Mm -hmm. I don't think that at all. But I think it, 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 it depends on where you are. Look, if you're dependent on food bank, and, and when we talk about fast fashion, it's interesting because everybody thinks, oh, well, it's frivolous. It's the thing that girls do and some boys and blah, 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 blah. You don't have to have that. It is, if you've got two or three kids and you've got to buy T-shirts for them for gym, right. you've got to buy a skirt for them for or a pair of trousers for school, it's still it's the garment industry. It's not yeah. just about fashion. So, so what are you going to do then? Are you going to say, well, I've had to go to the food bank this week, but I've got to buy the, the kids' um, school uniform from John Lewis? You know? <laughs> If, no. if I want, if I want, if I want a trustworthy brand, yeah, you know, we're not. This is this is mad. It's, it's cloud cuckoo land. Yeah. And I think one of the things for me that I've come across with other fashion activists is this kind of attitude that says, "Well, it's up to the consumer to 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 drive all of this." And I say, "No, not really. I don't think so. I think the fashion industry has created the business model." Mm -hmm. that, that that has given us fast fashion. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to be clear, let's be clear on this. Just because you pay a lot for something, it doesn't mean you're getting a better deal in terms of their trustworthiness around right. labour issues. So there are factories that um, somebody once famously uh, came to, I asked him to come to the House of Lords for a meeting about this whole area when I was first learning about it. And he brought with him a little case of T-shirts so the the one T-shirt, uh, the cheapest one cost about £2 and was from a, a famous fast fashion uh, a chain. The next one was about 20 quid. The next one was about 40. And then the top one was £65. Don't say that all, they, were all all, the all, they were all made in the same factory. <laughs> no way. Every, all made in the same factory. Maybe a difference between the quality of cotton, but right. not £63 worth. My gosh. I mean, you were shocked there, Ben. Yeah, I was I was rattled, man. Because, and you know why? Because I, I just think, like, like, what Lola's saying here is so, so important about um, the, the blame piece and coming back to, again, this idea of who we point our fingers at and who we say is responsible for the situation that we're in. Um, because I've done that. Like, I've I've been the person that's like said oh people shouldn't be buying fast fashion and people who shop at Primark are doing something really bad and so on and so forth um without also like taking a moment to acknowledge where I have privilege do you know what I mean and, and I think like it's really easy for me as a, as a black man to 
um, consider myself at the bottom of the barrel um, or to consider myself in the worst position and therefore I have the right to judge whoever mm. I want, however harshly I want to, without acknowledging that, like, economic privilege is a real thing. Do you know what I mean? And, and actually, like, some people have no... Like, it, it's not that people are making bad decisions. Some people have no choice to make. Like, some people have no no power to make those kinds of decisions. Um, and as the person who points the fingers, I think also, like, there's... The, you know the saying, like, when you point a finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you um, <laughs> I love that and I do I do really think like whenever you can see an issue um, and I think this is maybe a shift for me in my thinking around this topic as well like whenever you see an issue um, it probably means that you're well placed to do something about the issue like if you can see it and analyse it and say that's a problem because of this reason then that's a starting point for you to make, a, make an impact or make a change um, and I think that conversation is so so important I think that that you know that that finger pointing and three coming back to you, it's so true. And and I think like the the other piece of this right it, it is again like bringing the bringing the um, magnifying glass back to myself. What can I do then? So how do I? change this thing so rather than saying oh those people are so bad for buying that or these people are so bad for buying this like what do I buy and how do I do that responsibly and I think like a, a piece of a really useful piece of information that came up really early in in these conversations um was that that conversation about about, P, about B Corps um, mm. Which to me, like, was you was love a, B Corps. You're you know, like, like that you was a game changer. B Corps. Do you know why? Because I because I think that that for me is one of the easiest ways to actively do something. Yeah. Like all yeah, I have yeah, to yeah. do is Google B Corp and look at the list of who's on there and decide. Okay, if I'm buying a coat for winter, and also like there are certain items of clothing that I buy with the knowledge that those things are going to last for two three four years yeah. right so like if i'm buying a jacket and my option is between one corporation that is doing things sustainably and i know like the trucks that they're using are more likely to be electric or they're they're very aware of like what the impact of their carb or what carbon footprint they're leaving on the planet when they're shipping products around the world or mm. whatever it might be like that's a really easy way of cutting out the middleman and me not having to research every step of that process in that procedure and just saying right i know that these people do the right thing so therefore i can buy and it doesn't have to be that i buy every single thing from there and a, another part of this that was massive was for me was like um lola saying that it's not about buying more expensive pieces of clothing yeah um, it's actually about how how long we use those items for um yeah. and about and not even so much about dismantling um, the fashion industry, but more more about dismantling capitalism, um, and and the necessity we have for buying new things and yeah, having yeah, new things yeah. and like yeah, it was so so interesting, man. Uh, yeah, and, and you know it because I think all of this, all of this, kind of brings us to something that we talked about a little bit because episode seven was, was with James Thornton, mm -hmm. founder of Client Earth, amazing dude, I'd say. Um, yeah. Wow. James James <laughs> James is the person that's literally on the list of most important people for changing the world. <laughs> I know, I know, and, and well and well deserved. So we talked a lot yeah. about the law in that episode, right? But there was something he said right at the beginning and I wanted to highlight it because I think and I think you'll agree, Ben, I think this is super important. So let's let let's go to the audio tape. I've always wanted to say that. Because <laughs> what I wanted to do is to protect nature, you know. And, right. uh, and then uh, since law was in my family, uh, I knew it was a powerful thing. And I thought, well, I'll become a lawyer and see, see what's possible. And then, uh, then it became possible to, to use it uh, very, very powerfully. But what I wanted to do is to protect nature. And I didn't originally want to protect people because I was quite uh, pissed off at people because people were making all <laughs> their problems, right? Uh, right? And it took years and years and years. But one day when I was in a Zen retreat, uh, many years later, um, I felt uh, I had this very strong uh, experience where I realized that uh, uh, I, I had been I had been thinking that people were going to kill all life on Earth. You know that's what uh, why I was so angry. And I realized in this retreat that even if we 
did our worst. You know, we're not going to take down all life on Earth. We could take ourselves down. We could take a lot of species down. But life would go on. Mm. And that doesn't seem like, a, 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 like an enormously powerful revelation when I put it that way. But it was for me. And I relaxed. And I said, oh, wonderful. We can't kill all of life on Earth. And I started thinking, so what do I, what's, my, what's my job then? What do I do? And the answer was, um, mm. if people are causing the problems, I need to work with people. Oh, and if people are causing the problems, it's because they don't know what they're doing. So I found myself suddenly getting uh, extremely fond of people. You know, uh, which was a big change. I'd been very angry. And then I started thinking, oh, okay, I need to take care of people and not just nature. Mm. And the next book did was, well, uh, you know, environmental problems are all mental problems uh, because it's mm. how we think about things. And how Ooh. we think about things is what we then do, right? So environmental problems are mental problems. And I realized if I want to save nature, I have to work with people, people, people. Can I tell you, Ben? that one of my favorite things of listening to all of our episodes is your reactions to everyone. I'm like, oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. I think it's so great. Um, But I love what James says here. Yeah. People, people, people. Like, so, so incredibly important. Um, And and the, the first, like, so many parts of it, but the first part is, like, this idea. The thing that really stood out to me is this idea that you... um People can't kill all life on Earth. Like, we can kill ourselves, we can wipe humans off the face of the planet and take out a bunch of other species while we're doing it, but the planet will continue. Like, the, yeah. the like life on the planet will continue to survive. So, actually... Um, the the approach to this becomes people-centric, right? Obviously, we're trying to save the planet, but the planet's going to survive. So, really, like, we can't afford to dismiss people, particularly when we now have all of these other layers to the conversation, especially the layer of intersectionality that helps us to understand who is most affected by this stuff and who is least likely to understand or engage in it, and then what the responsibility then is to engage those people and how we are able to do that. Like I think that's a like an amazing um shift in like my the my ways of thinking about this conversation that's come up for me. You know, I don't know if this is gonna be a popular thing to say. Mm. But I think that the reason we have been so down on people is a legacy of colonialism. Yeah. I I think... <laughs> very unpopular, but very true. <laughs> it's the same... It's some of the same issues, like you said, we've had international development work mm. and social justice work. But when we look at really... And I'm not going to say who. Anyone who knows me <laughs> knows who I'm talking about, but I'm not going to say who. If we look at really famous environmentalists and conservationists, they have literally said things like humans are a plague on this earth. Yeah. And that we need to reduce the population and we need to do this and we need to do that. And when we hear those things, you know, I really need us, I really want people to be critical because what we're saying here is that we are okay with a whole bunch of human beings dying. Mm. That is, that's that's the long and short of it, right? When we don't care about people when it comes to environment and we say we're letting people die, that is, I think, inherently a white supremacist statement because yeah. it is never white people we're talking about. It right. is always expendable black and brown people. It is always women, you know, who are working in fisheries in East Africa we're talking about. We're, we are never talking about white people. We're yeah. never talking about Western people. And... That's why people are so important. That's why keeping this human focus is so important. And it's it's like, and you were saying earlier, right? Like it's like this idea of um, Thanos in the Avengers, yeah, and the and the snap, right? And that being the great great equalizer. And oh, if we just wipe out half of the people on the planet, it will be. But which half are we talking about? And I think yeah. that's the point that you're making, right? Is like these things are never. It's not randomized in the way that it's randomized in a comic book like this like there is a system or a series of systems that are so interlinked that mean that there are particular people over and over again who are impacted and some people who over and over again are not impacted by these things i used to think that climate change was the great equalizer that we all cared about it 
because it would impact all of us. And I've come yeah. to realize this year, in sh because of the, what I've learned from watching this global pandemic with all of the rest of the world, is that it isn't the great equalizer. In yeah. fact, climate change will, like everything else, have a disproportionate impact on the people who are already suffering from the systems of oppression and yeah. probably has the least to do with creating it. Yeah. It's why it just, you need to keep people centered to the argument, I think. Yeah, it always just perpetuates the inequalities, right? <laughs> Rather than equalizing anything. Exactly, it just exactly. Makes everything more stark, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, we've gone to a pretty dark place. I think if you ever get <laughs> yeah, to that, <laughs> is it that also the Avengers? You, you've gone to a dark place, and I think our speakers did a pretty good job of, of keeping us out of the darkness. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question. Uh-huh. What was the most shocking thing that you learned in this in this season? Oh, most shocking thing that I learned was probably that my gas stove is killing me and my family. Um that was that was a pretty rough that was a pretty rough moment. I'm sure if you play the clip back, you'll hear me being like, what? No way. Like I was pretty deeply rattled by that. Um Let's have yeah, a let's have was, a listen. Let's tough. see if that's true. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Someone said to me, you know, the biggest piece of your carbon footprint are the four gas appliances in your home. I said, what are you talking about? They're like your water heater, your furnace, your dryer, and your stove. Not the dryer. No way. Are you telling the truth? Four gas appliances. It was a bigger carbon footprint than my car when I used oh. to have a oil-fired car, gasoline car, petrol car. And I had never heard the story. And I was like, it can't be true. It just can't be true. So I did my research and I was like, oh, yeah. As we've been making progress on all these other sectors, there's this thing literally under our feet or in our basement or uh, in the closet that is emitting enormous amounts of pollution. So that was the first big revelation. But the second that really knocked my socks off was when someone said, you know, three of those devices are required to be vented outside. All the pollution from heating water, drying your clothes, and heating your space, the pollution when they burn that gas has to be vented through a chimney outside. One doesn't. And then I was like, the stove? And they're like, yes, you're burning a fossil fuel inside a building, inside your home, inside your kitchen, one of the most sacred of all places. And no one told us that when we're cooking, whether it's boiling water for pasta or um, uh, a holiday dinner, that we're emitting large amounts of pollution inside our homes. And we're still, the levels of pollution that we've known about for almost three decades are above levels that would be illegal outdoors in our homes. So that has been a big revelation. No, man. That was, that, that was, that was bad. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> I had a, a proper crisis after that. <laughs> I, think like, I was I got... like, how do I get rid of this stove? <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> I think I got the most number of messages after this episode where people were like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I... It's scary. <laughs> it is scary. It's, it's scary. You know, I'll tell you what it makes me think or what I've been thinking about since that episode that I find truly more scary is... So the thing about gas is... We've all gone around thinking, if it was bad for us, someone would tell us, mm. right? No one has until now. And I keep thinking, well, what else is there out there that is that is this bad that no one is telling us about, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I found some pretty, out some pretty shocking stuff about recycling plastic, which I think we'll have to save until season two because oh. I don't think that we can take, we can take it right now. But... <laughs> I do think that, that the episode with Bruce was the one that people found across the board most difficult. I have to, I have to ask this. I've been dying to ask this question. Have you talked to your parents about your gas stove? No, nah, I can't. I can't do it. I just I just um, ventilate the house while they're cooking. 
and while have I'm they, cooking. Have they wondered why you now go around obsessively opening windows? Yeah, and my mum keeps switching off the fan. <laughs> she hates <laughs> it. She keeps switching off the extractor because it makes so much noise. But I'm like, yeah. no, you have to. You have to leave it on. Because it's... And I, I, do you know what? I think I want to... With my parents, I've thought about this a lot, actually, and I want to mm. be in a position where I'm able to say to them, I will replace it. Yeah. Um, rather than just bugging them out do you know what I mean because also they're old <laughs> but yeah, <I> but, <laughs> but yeah it's I, like I think that has been one of the most practical changes that I've made so I want to let's go into the closing let's do a rapid fire closing Ben okay okay here we go rapid fire closing um we ask all of our guests the following two questions I would like the two of us to answer it now so question one in, in under a minute, what does, if everything goes right, if all these amazing people do, you know, their work is successful, we support them, we fund them, you know, all of it happens, what does 2030 look like? Um, so I, I, think, I think of my answer to this question in terms of cities, because mm. that's where I live. I think the cities will sound quieter. There will hopefully be more electric cars and less cars on the roads. Like, I remember that from the episode of Monica. I think also, like, an interesting thing that came up for me was this idea of why or where this work is being done and where those of us who are doing this work are situated. Um, and I think it will look like the work the hubs of this work that need to be done being done from the communities that are most impacted by it, mm. um, and 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 the color of uh, climate action looking very different, I think is a massive thing. I think that, that that has to change, right? Like those of us who are from the communities that are like mostly or most disproportionately affected by these issues have to begin to speak more about these things and start to do those different pieces of work. And I think it will look like also so much more creativity in what the work in inverted commas looks like. Like mm. I think it, I think it will look like. Um, people making cartoons and comic books about like, right. about climate change and, and people um, creating art, more art around the, the topic that's not just explicitly saying climate change is an issue. Mm. Um, education changing, hopefully, and kids learning more about these, these topics, but also learning how they can deal with that eco-anxiety um, and how they can act on, on what's happening. Um, those, are, those are the things that stand out for me. I'm not sure what, what things... What does it look like for you, 2030? I think it's three things for me. One, that climate change is no longer like a, a partisan issue, you mm -hmm. know, where, you know, if you're Democrat or you're Labour, you support it, and if you're Republican and Conservative, you don't. Mm -hmm. That we, we realise that climate change has nothing to do with, like, capital P politics, um, everything to do with lowercase p politics, but that, you know, we all need to act on it and policymakers understand that and so do people voting. The mm. second is that as as individuals, as consumers, as, as just people existing in the world, that we, it's easier for us to make good decisions because those decisions are more transparent, but also there's, there's you know, the, you know, the cost of renewable energy has come down so much and the cost of electric cars and fashion brands are being more transparent and people care about each other around the world. Um, and the third thing is that we are solidly, you know, in the middle of a just transition, mm. that we are, we care about workers, we care about the, the lowest paid as well as the, the big kind of flashy stuff. And we are finding a, a way to, to justly transition out of these extractive and, and harmful economies and we're doing it in a way that it supports workers, retrains them and, and hopefully creates better livelihoods while holding on to some of the cultural elements that are tied up in these industries. So mm -hmm. that's what I want 2030 to look like. Okay. That's a good answer. That was such a good answer. Damn. Um, okay. The other, the other question we always ask, right, is what, for the average person listening to this podcast, what can they do? Um, and and what does so what does action? Having heard eight people answer this question, <laughs> and also thinking about our own answers, what does action look like to you? And what what would you say uh, to somebody who is asking you that question? You know, the simplest thing, and I've always said this, is vote. 
Mm. That's it for me. Is if find a couple of things you care about. You know, for me, it's like climate, it's women's rights, it's LGBT rights, it's the rights of migrants, it's refugee rights. I mean, this is not a few, but... And it's, you know... Uh, and uh, the rights of sex workers. And, and I would I would look at those issues and I look at the people who I'm voting for and I vote for the person who matches that most. Mm. Um, I know that sounds like a lot of work, but actually there's so many resources out there that can make it easier for you to vote. Mm. Um, voting is our most powerful tool that that every citizen has and that having lived in countries where I haven't been a citizen mm. and I've had to live under laws that I had no no say and would never have a say in making yeah. it's so important we vote so that's for, for me what it is that's, a, that's such a good one again and that's so interesting the way that you phrase that like having lived in countries where you have no say in what happens yeah be in somewhere where you can influence that or impact that Makes it becomes such a super important right yeah um we I take think, it for granted we take voting for granted yeah yeah i think for me um i have been or my my belief in the power of conversation has been reignited mm. um and i i think i am starting to understand the potential of what can happen when you do have conversations. Um, so for me, I would say like the easiest, that by far the easiest place to start. And for anybody who's like me and listening and needs an easy place to start, I would say is listen to all of these episodes of the podcast and then have conversations with them about the people in your circles. Do you know what I mean? Like, or have conversations about them with the people in your circles. Yeah, and and also like share the podcast. Like, not not because we want people to listen to them, but just because it's a really easy way of starting that conversation. Um, and it doesn't have to be like I think I've I've definitely learned over this process that like you don't have to be an asshole to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't. Yeah. I think I had a perception of people who did this kind of work yeah. based on what the media has portrayed about more yeah. prominent voices in the conversation um which I, a lot a lot of a lot of that portrayal is nonsense and i know that it's nonsense but that still seeps into your consciousness or sure. your like your psyche um and and i think i've i've discovered that you can be nice and you can be kind and you can be gentle and patient and have these conversations with people and people can learn and i have learned um, and that becomes super important. So I would say, like, conversation becomes super, super important. Can I have a cheeky second one, of which course. is not really mine, but it's Krista Mayer's, but I think it was probably, for me, one of the most important. I don't even know if it was part of his answer to this question, but it came out in his episode, which mm. was, think about what you do. I mean, I know Cl Clover talks about this. Think about right. what you do. Think about your skills. Think about your world. And then think about climate as you start to learn about it and look at the two look at what like look at that look at climate through the lens of your world and yeah. that will help you understand how you can best contribute to this maybe we don't all best contribute to it by all just taking a series of checklist actions maybe we do it then by you being a podcast host and by yeah. me curating voices and you know and also making other good decisions but I think this idea of like find your place in it is so powerful. Yeah. So, so, so important. Okay. And so freeing. And so yeah. freeing. So freeing if we if you realise you don't all have to do the same thing. Yeah. You know what time it's time it is now. It's time for reverse confessions, fashions, fashions. So what what are reverse <laughs> climate confessions, you may ask? Um so I thought after 16 confessions from the two of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> After discovering that we are horrible people. We should possibly, maybe... I would. I was actually just really curious to know if you had changed anything from having confessed to your, to your crimes. Uh, well, the answer is no. No. I, so I, I have changed some stuff. Um, I've I've said a lot of it already. So the stuff around so, yeah, tell me your top the top things. Um, so definitely like my water usage. I don't brush my teeth using hot or warm water anymore. Although it's very uncomfortable and it's not my favorite thing in the world, I don't do that. Um, 
I always ventilate when I'm cooking in the kitchen yeah. now. Um, although I, I'm sure that that's equally as bad because I'm just putting it outside. <laughs> but at least, at least I'm not directly impacting my parents in that way. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, I can't. I can't think of any others now. I'm under pressure. Oh, um, I am looking into um, sustainably sourcing new underwear. Because oh. I I need to that's a that's a big one that's for me. The H and M thing was a massive one for me, and I need to really seriously okay. think about that. So I'm actually okay. researching it. I'm really looking forward to you. I want you to come back for season two with an answer for our, okay. our people who are who are now not going to have underwear for three months. <laughs> Got you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing? Um, okay, two for me. Two for me. One is I got a uh, lovely coffee maker. Um, in my house, which means Ooh. I no longer have to go out and get coffee with disposable cups. Smart. Because I just cannot... Like, if you think about it, this year alone, which is when my coffee addiction has kicked in, I'll probably have thrown away, like, 600 disposable cups. Wow. That's just not wow. on, is it, Imagine. right? yeah. So I have, yeah, I have a coffee maker at home. I love it. So that's been a big one. And the other one, which is, again, like, a bit more, I guess... Not again, but is... Something that I only confessed to last week, but I think I've been thinking about it for a long time, and so I, I've been trying to change my behaviour, is I'm trying to not stop buying things just to make myself feel better. Mm. Um, and, yeah, just see if I can realise, like, decouple that thinking. Because the truth is, is that I never do actually feel better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't so It's not work, even working. It? So, yeah, that's those, those are my two. Um, okay, Ben. I started this this whole crazy journey with you mm-hmm. a, nine episodes ago, I guess now, um, asking you one question. And I want to ask it to you again uh, as we close this bonus episode of season one. Mm-hmm. Ready? Yeah. Do you care about climate change? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I, I just, and now at this point, I feel like, how can you not? Um, and and also like even if I don't ex- even if I didn't explicitly care about climate change, climate change is so intertwined into all of the other things that I care about that I obviously do. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so linked um, and so urgent. Yeah. And also manageable. Wow. Which is a, a big thing. I think a big a big learning for me in this process. Yeah, love it. Good job. Two things I want to. Say in in closing, one of them is that we know that you're going to miss us dearly, deeply, deeply. We're going to miss all of you. So if you do miss us, don't miss us too badly because you can hear from Clover and you can hear from Ben and 12 other amazing speakers um, at TEDx London Women on the 6th of February. Tickets are still available. Um, You'll see them linked all over our social media. Um, We'd love to have you. It's a COVID safe event. You'll be watching it from home. And Ben, it's going to be pretty epic, isn't it? It's going to be so good. So good. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, yeah. And I guess the the last thing to, to say, well, I guess this is really my last question, Ben, is is will you come back and do season two with me? Oh, of course. Marion, you don't need to ask me questions like that. That's ridiculous. Of course I will. What else am I going to do? <laughs> this is like the best part of my week. This is so fun. Yeah, of so course I, guess, I will. So I guess we'll um, catch you in season two, which will be coming in spring 2021. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. And? So, yes. Do I get to say it now? Yeah, please. Okay. And remember, stay curious. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, please rate and subscribe and share the episode with a curious friend. Join the conversation on socials using the hashtag ClimateCuriousPod and let us know what you want to hear about next time. You can find us online at TEDx London. This podcast was made possible by TEDx London's headline partner, City. City is all about progress and supporting great ideas. And for the past five years, they've supported us to bring world-changing ideas to the TEDx London stage. Now they're taking it to the next level by supporting this new podcast. Thanks, City. This episode was produced by Josie Coulter, curation and research by Tara Cooper, engineered and mixed by Ben Beheshti. 
Artwork designed by Sabrina Russo and Rebecca Mingus. Music composed by Ben the Falcon Beheshti. Presented by Marian Pasha and Ben Hurst. <laughs>